Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Aaron Mankey, who last time I talked to him on Systematic was a graphic designer, a writer, and a podcaster. And then he made a podcast called Lore, which you probably have heard of. Um, so we're going to talk about the success of that. How's it going, Aaron? Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on here. This is fun. Yeah. Okay. So I had um, Aaron Dowd on in a recent episode, and we talked about what makes podcasts good. Mm. And my first thought was, I know a guy who might have some insight. Who let's you spent a long time before that trying to make successful products that didn't pay your bills entirely. Yeah. And you kept going at it. And then lore worked. Yeah. So <laughs> And it was an it was an accident. I mean I I didn't mean to do this. It just kinda happened. And and to what extent has lore worked? How what were the uh the ratings the last time you checked? So the lore has over forty one hundred, almost forty two hundred um reviews in iTunes. Um about thirty nine hundred of those are five star. Um I've been featured in Huffington Post, Entertainment Weekly. Um, I was in Wired um, yesterday. They they did a little uh, collection. Stephen King and myself were on there. Um, this American Life and a BBC thing, I think. Um, I don't think I'll ever say the word Stephen King and myself. Right. <laughs> it's it's kind of fun. It really mm, it really amazing. is. Yeah. I mean, so to put this in perspective, so I I launched Lore. It, seriously, it was it was an accident. It wasn't like I clicked the wrong thing and I pushed a file live to the internet that I shouldn't have. It was just I was doing the thing where they say, "Hey, if you want to sell more of your eBooks, you should build an email list." You know, <laughs> so so that I mean that's that's the and for certain industries that totally works. You know, so um, I thought I want to sell more fiction. I'm self publishing my novels. Why don't I build my email list? I had 66 people on my email list, so I thought, well. I need to make that a bigger list so that when I have a new book out, they'll all run out and buy it and I can maybe buy the coffee I, you know, I drank while I was writing the book. Because um, I was making about five bucks a month doing my books. And, and the thing was here, if I couldn't earn money from the books, this was my last ditch effort. I was going to stop writing forever. I, I just, I couldn't justify taking the time to write a book while I was trying to run a design business. So I started writing this giveaway, this, you know, the incentive. What, what are you going to give people if they sign up for your, your email list? And mine was going to be my five favorite New England myths, my five favorite historical things that are creepy and weird and part of New England folklore. And I wrote four of the five, looked at the word count and freaked out because it was, it was like 20,000 words. It was, it was more than I was prepared to sit down and read myself because <laughs> I do a lot of audio listening. I do audiobooks, podcasts. So I thought, man, nobody's going to want this. It's not valuable. And I almost dragged it in the trash can and just moved on. That was it. Like end of story. And uh, then I had this idea, you know, maybe, maybe I could record them like an audiobook and, and give people the MP3s, put them in a zip, you know, five MP3s together and let them download that. Maybe that's more digestible. So I recorded one of them, the first story in that five um, set of five. And I sent them off to my buddy, Seth. And I said, hey, Seth, can you listen to this and tell me if it's worth you know, handing over an email address for? And he listened to it and he said, don't do that. Put this out as a podcast. And I'm like, oh, come on. It's just me talking. Like, it's not it's not two dudes sitting around talking about a topic. It's just, <laughs> I, I wrote something and I'm kind of like narrating it on the podcast. And he's like, no, put this on as a podcast. So I did. Um, about a month after I released the first episode, 
Uh, iTunes featured it in New and Noteworthy, which was a really huge um, you know, kick in the pants for the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, it went from, I don't know, a couple hundred downloads a day to that first day that it was featured. It was like 3,500 downloads that day. Um, and then, you know, I was featured in the, the banner and iTunes a couple of times since then. And uh, by month number five, I was full time. I was earning enough money from the show within five months that I quit my design job, closed it up, handed all my clients off to other designers and said goodbye. Um, and by month number six, I had TV offers, multiple. I had about two dozen production companies reach out to me. We're going to get to that in a sec because that's fascinating. What? How do you make money on Lore? Is it all sponsorships? No, I, I, I subscribe to the, the many streams make a river philosophy. You know, have a lot of different things going and they all contribute to your income. So, um, which is, you know, investors call it diversifying. Um, it's good because if one of them fails, you have the others to hold you up. Um, you don't lose everything. You just lose part of it. So I have sponsorships. That's a big bulk of, of, um, the revenue from lore. And then there's, um, you know, like book sales and merchandise sales through the website. Um, that's another arm of it. I do Patreon, which a lot of creators use. Um, you know, people, um, pledge a monthly amount of money to the show and they get certain monthly goodies out of that. I give my Patreon members extra episodes because I found early on that what they really wanted was just more of the show. So I do Patreon, merch, sponsorships. Um, there's got to be other things. I do live shows from time to time. So live shows and speaking have become something that I earn some money from. Wow. Uh, I know. I've got, I've got a gig in January where somebody just reached out and said, I want to pay you to come talk to a bunch of executives about fear. So <laughs> I'm going to do that. Um, yeah, it's for, just all about, about revenue streams, I think. For the guy that I originally knew as the creator of Cool Index Cards, right? this is a career switch. It, in some ways, it's like, holy cow, what just happened? And at the same time, you know, the whole hindsight's 2020 kind of thing. I can look back at the skills I've been picking up over the last decade, and it makes sense. You know, I was... It was writing more and more fiction. Um, so I was honing those skills. Not that I'm Stephen King or something. I'm not the, the best writer in the world. It just, I, I had a mind for story. Um, you know, doing homework with Dave Kahlo for four years really helped me, you know, learn how to plug a mic in and do some audio editing. And I, I kind of fumbled my way through that. Um, the design work helps with the branding of the show. And even to this day, the stuff that I that I put out, I'm, I'm still designing most of it. In fact, before we jumped on the call, I was, I was working on some artwork for some enamel pins that I I, <laughs> I hope to sell for in the in the shop. Um, nice. So it's like I've been it's like I've had one of those Gladstone bags, you know, the old doctor bags. And over the years, I've just been shoving skills into it, and all of a sudden, lore comes around, and it, it's like it's using everything in the bag. And so in some ways, it's out of the blue and really new, and it, at the same time, it's it's just old hat, and I like that. So for the sake of my sanity and probably a lot of listeners, how? How long did you spend packing that bag before it began to pay off? Hmm. How old are you now? I'm, I'm 41. Okay, so I have a couple years. Yeah, yeah. Three. I have three years to <laughs> get where you are. Oh, you're still in your 30s. That's I'm nice. 38 in July. Yeah. Your birthday was in, uh, we, I won't give too much personal info. Yeah, yeah it was recently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I don't know how I don't know how to answer that because it, it's a hard question. You know, I, I think it's just kind of life over the last decade or so. Um, you know, has has put these things in my hands. Um, 
you know, I, like I like I said before, Laura was an accident. But I, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I I brought a lot of skills to the table. Um, again, I'm not the best at what I do, but um, I'm kind of making it up as I go along, and so far it's working. Um, and as a result, I'm I'm really opinionated about how podcasts should be run um, within my genre, which is you know like narrative storytelling podcasts. I have no I have no uh, insight into you know like a five person panel you know <laughs> you know interview show. I can't I can't I can't tell people how to do that. Specializing, but, right? But but in in what I do, I'm really really opinionated like I, I was telling somebody yesterday it's like I'm a nice guy opinionated person you know I I don't want to offend anybody but but I, I I hardcore believe the things that I that I say like I just there's certain ways to do things and I have it. noted over my career that all of the best products are opinionated my yeah. my design sense has always been something that tries to please everyone very subject to results from, you know, product testing and focus groups. Yeah. And then I've seen, I mean, Apple is my primary example, but I've seen companies that just make something based on their opinions and then sell it. And it's always more successful than someone who tries to gather all of the scraps of what everyone else thinks is right. Right. And it's, if, it's, you're, if your opinion is good, that is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's, in some ways, if you if you listen to everybody and you do what everybody says, you're building Homer Simpson's car. Yeah. Remember that episode? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's got everything in, under the sun on it. So <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm, so I, I like what I do and I'm pretty opinionated about it. <laughs> why do you think at this point that an author with the same storytelling sensibility didn't sell enough books to keep going, but the podcast version worked? I think it's a combination of the the market was there, um, and and I learned this in retrospect. It's not like I did some market analysis and said and said, "What's the best podcast I could put out right now? What are people hungry for?" It just happens that I put out some stuff that was like supernatural history, right? And and supernatural is big right now. The the X Files, a show called Supernatural, um, any anything like that. Um, people are interested in the unexplainable and. Um, so the, the audience was there and it's, you know, you, you have to think about niches and um, somebody who does a podcast about, well, like, like um, Brad Dowdy, right? So he does a podcast about pens and he has a, an enormous audience within his niche, but it's probably a smaller niche than the general public or say maybe like a, um, a sports podcast. It's going to have a huge potential audience. Um, I, I guess I just happened to pick a topic that had a, a really big potential audience. Um, so that helped. And, you know, so writing a novel, you have, the first thing you have to do is actually plan out the plot. Well, some, some authors do. I'm a plotter. So I, I plan everything out. I outline the thing up and down. Um, some people like Stephen King will actually just sit down and start writing. And I don't, I don't get that, but it works for them. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's kind of done all right. So it, it, it works okay for him. Um, I like to plan things out and plot them out. Um, Dan Harmon, you know, the guy that did yeah. community. I mean, he's the same way, you know, likes to plan things out and is a formula for things that work for him. Although I um, don't think Harmon Quest is overly planned. Well, no, no. But I remember <laughs> reading an article. I don't remember what, what magazine it was in, but it was about how he was building the, the scripts for a community. And just there was some sort of a circle model involved and, and you had to fill in all these pieces and it worked. It just, it created great content. So when you're writing a novel, you have to invent the story before you can even sit down and write it. And 
you know, I was, I was good at writing the story, but I always had a hard time finding the plot to write about. And what the beauty of lore is, is I'm finding the plot in history. I don't have to make it up myself. Some dude did build a house with secret rooms and tunnels and then brought in women who were looking for a place to stay and killed them over years. Like, that's real life. I don't have to make that up. I can just sit down, take the facts, outline it out, filter out what I don't need for the story, and then tell it in my own way. And that's been really uh, powerful for me because I don't have to sweat the deeply creative thing of inventing something from nothing. So it's like tracing. In, in, uh, it's, like, um, it's like finding bones in the earth, you know, and then the museum will take them and they'll clean them up and they'll, uh, they're, clearly they're making casts of them and then using the casts, but they'll, they'll build the model of what it was to show off a story, to show off um, something that used to be. I like that for the sake of a metaphor, you felt it necessary to include the detail about them being casts and not originals. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound like a moron. <laughs> no, I, that's a wonderful metaphor. I, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the TV show before I get into some more detailed questions about why storytelling podcasts work. Mm-hmm. I only found this out recently, as in during our pre-chat, because I live under a rock. Well, Laura's been picked up as a TV show. It has. It has. And not just a PBS show. <laughs> like a, a public broadcast uh, channel, channel whatever, channel zero. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was month number six. I, it was uh, August of last year. I started getting emails from people. Um, they've stopped now that the news went out in, in April that the show is going to happen, um, which is kind of nice. But it was a couple dozen of them. And, you know, for a while, it was a lot of small companies. It was people that had done like, yahoo videos and stuff not that that's that doesn't take skill but it just it wasn't network television or anything like that so um i politely declined a lot of the offers but it it put it in the back of my mind that you know maybe something could actually happen here and then uh somebody reached out from from a company uh called propagate and uh propagate is responsible for that show that apple is making called uh, planet of the apps whether or not you think the name is dumb or the concept (laughs) is dumb um apple's apple's making their own very first original content TV show. And they're doing it with a company called Propagate Content. Um, And they're the people that reached out to me. Uh, One of my contacts there, he runs marathons and listens to podcasts while he does that. And he found mine. It was about, I don't know, episode eight or so that he, that he bumped into the show. And uh, he thought this, this could be a TV show. And he reached out. We had a lot of conversations and then, and then I signed on with them. Um, So that was August of last year. And then at that point we realized they're good at like, finding shows, building shows, the, the nuts and bolts stuff. We wanted a, a partner with a big name who could do creative storytelling uh, visually. Like I can tell it on, on paper and with my voice, but they needed somebody who could also help take that to the, the visual level. And uh, we interviewed with a bunch of different companies and uh, some amazing people. I met some, <laughs> I just, I've met some really amazing people um, and ended up signing up with, not signing up, but I ended up partnering with a company called Valhalla. Um, it's a company led by a woman named Gail Ann Hurd. She, she worked on Alien, Terminator, um, I think Aliens, not Alien, um, The Abyss. Um, but she makes a show called The Walking Dead, which people have seen and heard. Uh, What's that about? No, it's, just kidding, it's something ahead. about like dead with walkers, like yeah, the, yeah, okay. the tennis balls on the front. Yeah. I thought that was uh, King- Game of Thrones. 
No, no, that's um, you're thinking of Game of Bones. <laughs> Please continue. So, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, so um, they're the creative partner on this, and um, I, there's a lot that's happened since we went public with, hey, they're going to make a TV adaptation of Lore, um, and all of it is, um, I'm, it's bound inside of my head with legal duct tape at this point, and I can't talk about it. But it's it's awesome stuff. So. That's amazing. Um, I mean, I, hopefully someday I can talk about it. I'm working with one of my heroes right now um, who had reached out because um, they liked the show so much uh, and just wanted to tell me thank you. I was able to get together for dinner uh, in, in, in L.A. Um, one night and, uh, and really hit it off. And there's kind of this mutual admiration thing going on. And all of a sudden, they're you know, part of my show. So it's, it's been really, it's been really fun. That's awesome. I yeah. feel like, um, you, there's a story here for your next book, <laughs> like how I accidentally made a podcast that became a TV show. Right. And I'll build an email list for that. And then I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to have to create a giveaway and I'll probably end up using the giveaway instead of the thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, the most successful podcast, or at least the most talked about podcasts in recent mind are shows like Serial and Lore and things that tell stories, whether it's in a running serial format or an episodic format. Mm-hmm. But they're, like you talked about how you didn't think it counted because it wasn't two guys sitting around talking about a specific topic, right. which I don't know, I... I can attest to the fact that more story-based podcasts are far more interesting to me and I'm far more likely to anxiously wait for the next one. So mm-hmm. at this point, you've been doing it long enough. Can you help pinpoint what it is that makes that genre of podcast so attractive to people? So audio in general is really attractive because it can squeeze into the cracks in our lives, right? So the 15 minute drive to the store, you can listen to, you know, most of an episode of 99% Invisible. You can, um, you can run or walk or exercise or whatever with headphones in, and you don't have to look at a TV screen in the gym. You can be listening to a podcast. Now, audiobooks fit into a lot of these as well, but you know, an audiobook, you're still thinking in chapters. So, you know, I just listened to a, a book called Slade House by David Mitchell. Fantastic novel. Very, very good. But it's basically broken into six massive chapters. They were like over an hour long each. So if I wanted to listen to the book for a 15-minute drive to the store and back, I'm only getting 15 minutes of a chapter. And that it makes me feel like I'm like leaving off where I shouldn't leave off. So podcasts really fit well into that. Of course, there are, you know, there are two-hour podcasts out there, um, although the talk show is probably... Um, as far as time wise goes an abomination among other shows, like, you know, it's just, it's not a normal show. Um, but, uh, I like that sweet spot of 20 to 30 minutes for a podcast. And, and because they're, they're that small, you can squeeze them into all sorts of different places in your life. So I think audio and therefore podcasts are super attractive. I also think that people feel so busy and, and pulled in so many different directions these days that if they can learn or be entertained while they're doing other things, there's so much more value to it, right? So, um, I mean, that's why Audible is doing so well as a company. And, you know, one of my sponsors is the great courses where you can listen to like lectures from professors. 
Um, you can learn while you're on the go. So podcasts really fit into that because you can find shows that will teach you things. You can find shows that will introduce you to new topics or new people. Um, I love a show called uh, Still Untitled with Adam Savage from the Mythbusters. Yeah. It's put out by Tested.com. And it's just three makers who sit around and talk about like comics and movies and um, prop making and um, how to handle your workshop. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's fun stuff for me. And so I think that's the, that's the appeal. Storytelling podcasts, they, especially the episodic ones where not episodic ones, the ones like, like lore where it's every episode is a new tale. There's so little investment, you know, you, you're just going to put 15, 20, 30 minutes of your life into it and then it's done. And then the next time an episode comes out, you can reinvest in it again. So there's, there's a lot of good in it. Yeah. So the idea of a single storyteller versus the panel of guys talking about, you know, Apple technology. (laughs) You said it, not me. (laughs) (laughs) What is the, uh, what's the difference to you? I guess I, I'm curious whether you think it's a, a redefinition of the podcast, whether it's a regression back to the ideas of audiobooks and things like that, whether it's like, does the popularity stem from uh, the idea of a book where people want to get lost in a story, or does it somehow blend the idea of the podcast medium into that? Well, I mean, so I would, I would equate popular with bigger numbers um, that's fair. So, you know, so if you say that, then w- what I think helps storytelling podcasts is they're a little bit more timeless. Not that a show that comes out next week about, let's say like the new lineup of, of Apple laptops for the fall, like not that that wouldn't be a good show and it would help people that week or that month. Um, but it does have an, a life expectancy to it. At some point it kind of fizzles out in its significance because it's, it's an ephemeral topic. But if I do an episode uh, like yesterday's on, um, you know, on witch persecution in Scotland in the mid 1700s, then th- that's going to be relevant for months and months and months, if not years, because it's it's just a piece of history, and we're just we're talking about it. And I'm telling it in a way that I, I, I try to leave out super contemporary details when I'm talking. You know, if I want to make an analogy about something, every now and then I will mention a TV show or whatever to compare, but I try to pick ones that aren't flash in the pan shows, you know, so just if somebody picks this up in five years, they're actually going to feel like it's a modern current show. And I I think that helps the storytelling podcast grow a bit more because now the content doesn't expire. It's, it's still relevant two years later when somebody finds it for the first time and they jump right onto that, um, you know, that the, the wagon full of people who have subscribed to it. So it grows faster. I think it just has more, it has more legs. That makes sense. In the world of large blogs, there's a they break posts into like news and then evergreen content. Right. And evergreen content rarely has that spike, you know, the viral sensation kind of traffic, mm-hmm. but it can sustain traffic over a way longer time, like years as opposed to a week. Right. Um and and so that that makes sense and and on in a large blog that combines the two Evergreen content is a very important, valid part of the overall traffic stream. Right. So it's, I don't know, it's interesting. But you see, you've gotten the best of both worlds, really. Like you had a, a rapid pile on of traffic mm-hmm. 
combined with the fact that those same episodes can continue to get traffic for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and, and maybe that's why the show has grown the way that it has. I mean, yeah. Well, that and it's really good. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. I mean, but I also work hard. You know, it's not like I, I, I don't show up. And it, I've heard people say, you know, hey, if all you need for an hour-long podcast is an hour and 15 minutes. You know, you need the hour to do the recording and 15 minutes to package it up. And I think that's a, I think that's a ripoff. You know, you, I, put, I put 30 or 40 hours into each episode. Do you think that contributes to the success directly? It's an element. Yeah, I think it's an element. There, there are other factors that help a show be successful. But I think the first and foremost is you've got to care about the content. You've got to spend lots of time crafting it. Um, and I, you know, so I had that, I had that document I've been writing those four, four of the five New England myth stories. So I had this little backlog of content, but I also had a design business to run. So it was really hard for the first few months where, you know, I had to write a new episode in the evenings, on the weekends, I had to find time to record and produce it. Um, and so they've been able to get a little bit longer since I've gone full time. They've been able to be a little bit deeper um, and, you know, spend a bit more time on the production process to make them sound a bit better. Um, so there are benefits to being full-time and doing this, but I still think that people who want to tell a story and do it through a podcast should spend a lot of time doing it instead of as quick as they can. So, um, broad general question. Yeah. Now that you're full-time making a highly successful podcast come media show, a uh, TV show, um, are you happy with where you've ended up here? I am. I mean, I, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I looked at a, a friend and said, I, I want to be a writer when I grow up. And, uh, you know, it took me 30 years to get there, but, but I'm a writer. I don't know if I grew up, but I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, in the sense that I get paid to write words and the, the way I get paid is through the audio show, but I'm still, I'm still crafting words every day. It's, it's, dude, I walked to the cafe. It's three blocks away. Every morning I sit down by 715 and I write until about 10. That's all I do. And then I go to the gym because uh, I discovered a few weeks ago that after a year and a half of writing on my butt, that um, <laughs> it's a pretty sedentary lifestyle and I need to move around a bit. So um, I'm not that much of a social guy. So I joined the Y and I go like mid-morning, you know, 10, 11 o'clock. And I, I run on treadmill and I swim in the pool and I want to talk to anybody. And it works really great for my introvert. Um so, so do it, headphones, by the way. They do. Yeah, they do. I, I can't take headphones in the pool, but the good news is sure. nobody else is there to talk to me. Um, Swimming cap. Yeah. <laughs> with, with Bluetooth uh, earbuds in there? No, yeah. just enough to make people think they can't talk to you. Right. That's the but, point of headphones. You don't actually have to play music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a decoration. But I, I, I love what I do. I do. I mean, it, it's getting more and more complex. You know, it used to just be right write the show, record the show and put it out. Uh, and now there's a little bit more to it. And I, it, it sounds like, you know, total first world problem, but I have, uh, you know, a couple hundred fan mails to answer every month. And <laughs> I try to reply to all of those personally. Um, I, I have, you know, the billing and the, the bookkeeping and, and all the businessy kind of stuff to take care of as well. Um, and, you know, and then the TV show, taking meetings and, and, and more meetings and some more meetings on top of that. It, it's, a, it's a lot, but I still love what I do. I mean, I work for myself. I, I was joking with my wife the other day. You know, when 
you read those stories about like the child found in the woods who'd been living by themselves for years and they can't speak any language and they, you know, they crap at a corner and they bark and, and they're not fit for society because they've been alone too long. If somebody forced me to go work in an office in a cubicle, I would probably <laughs> die. I mean, I am unfit for office life at this point. I have the same feeling. I just have not yet proven that I can survive without it. <laughs> I'm working on that though. Yeah. 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 You know, but I, I, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. It's, it's amazing. It's a dream come true and I'll ride this train as long as I can. That's so. awesome. So last topic prior to top three picks. Sure. You for a long time have not had a lot of hobbies that weren't uh, related to things you hope to make money on. Yeah. You mentioned those index cards earlier, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I still love. I have a uh, an extra stash of them because I'm not a like um, religious note taker, but they are still my favorite that I carry around in a um, moleskin that has no pages, just a, an accordion folder. Oh, nice! And I find that uh, the idea of like sequential pages doesn't work with the way I think. So mm -hmm. it's a shuffleable moleskin. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Oh, you, you do you have time now for more leisurely hobbies? I I have some time. Um, I have taken up reading uh, more comics lately. But the hobby hobby that I've taken on is this thing that I bumped into on Adam Savage's podcast, still entitled. Um, it's called Gunpla, but it's it stands for Gundam Plastic Model Kits. Um, it's it's model building. You think about building a model car or something, but this is. This is models based on the Japanese anime Gundam world. I don't watch it. I don't read those comics. I know nothing about Gundam, but they make model kits that are brilliant. They're highly, highly detailed. There's no glue required. And you think about, like, when you, if you've ever built a model kit, you'd open the box, and then inside is, like, the tree full of all the parts, and you have to cut them off. And all the parts on, on the whole kit would all be, like, one color, and then you'd have to paint everything. Well something about the way that they make these they've they've figured out how to injection mold multiple colors into one tree so you'll find a tree that has red parts and blue parts and clear parts and chrome parts and then they have multiple different types of plastic where you have some that are hard and some that are flexible and it's it's really really cool and i don't have to worry about okay can i can i monetize this <laughs> you know <am> I, <laughs> when i'm done with this robot can i sell it on ebay for 20 bucks you know it's i don't have to worry about that i just sit down with a knife and a, and a model and, and have fun making it. And I typically will throw headphones on, listen to podcasts or listen to an audiobook. And, uh, I mean, we have young kids. So I've got a, I've got two kids that are six and seven, so I don't get a ton of quiet time, but, um, when I do, that's how I spend it. So as someone who nerded out over model building as a child, I'm somewhat offended by the idea of not needing paint or glue. Well, you can, like, you can, you can step it up if you want. Like, it gets really complicated. You can take two pieces that, that come together and the seam is still visible. And they, like, they have this stuff called um, uh, plastic. It's not, it's not, pl it's plastic cement. It, like, melts the plastic together. Yeah, it's an epoxy that yeah. you use, like, a putty. Yeah. And, and then you, um, but this, this paints on real thin, almost like, it's almost like water, but it melts the plastic and then it helps it fuse together. And then you sand over that and then you sometimes fill it in with epoxy and then you can paint over that. And then there's no seam whatsoever. So people, like you can run the gamut. You can, you can snap it together as it is in the box or you can, 
you can take everything off, prime it, all that stuff, and uh, and go to town. It's it's pretty fun. So, how many shelves full of Gundam robots do you have now? Uh, thankfully, they take a long time with my schedule and, <laughs> and the, the complexity. Uh, so, I've only got three of them finished. And, so, uh, so there is a, there. It's not like a just IKEA thing where you just buy it and put it together. It's, it takes it takes some time, yeah. And there's different skill levels. Like you can buy a box that'll say master level, um, and then there's a perfect level above that. It's and like what's the, the difference? Number um, of parts. Number of parts. Complexity of things like the skeleton underneath the armor, um, articulation. Uh, yeah, it's it's, when, it's pretty. You mentioned movable plastic. When these are finished, are they action figures? They're not action figures like like we grew up with, you know, with like a GI Joe kind of thing. But they were um, they're they're posable, um, so you can you can bend them into different positions. They come with weapons, and you can there's like little. Um, stands that you can buy um that insert into their back and hold them up because a lot of them come with really heavy backpacks full of like jetpacks and wings and whatever they have flashing leds uh they don't come in the kit but i've, I've seen things online where you people add, totally do that yeah, add a flamethrower <clears throat> yeah in a smoke machine yeah yeah <laughs> this is this is intriguing i haven't thought about building models for a long time i used to really enjoy airplane models yeah Everybody needs that quiet thing to do every now and then. You know, maybe it's not your nightly hobby, but once a week or something to sit down and just focus on one thing that takes your mind off everything else, it's nice. I'd walk into the model shop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Mm. and see just towering shelves full of paints and glues and sanding paper, sandpaper. And it was... um, a kind of an awe-inspiring experience for me, not so much because of the model building, but because of the nerdery behind it. <laughs> Just something I could nerd out over. Yeah, absolutely. With an infinite number of supplies and options. Yeah, that's cool. Nice hobby. Yeah, yeah, gets me by. I like I like the idea of doing something entirely unprofitable because that's most of what I do. I do it with no intention of ever making money on it. Right. But I got lucky like with Marked. Marked yeah. was originally one of those projects that just happened to have that really good timing that you're talking about. Like I put it out at a point where surprisingly to me there was a growing market that sustained it. Yeah, so. well I mean that's that that's the thing. I mean people people will say you know that success is is all luck or they'll say it's all hard work and i think it's a mixture of both you know it's there are there's there are elements that you can control and there are elements you can't control you know you can't control when the market's ready for an idea like marked but you can control how hard you work right and you can control that you finish the thing a lot of people start writing a novel but not a lot of them finish writing the novel so <laughs> there's you know you can control parts of it and you can't control others and so i like to think about things like that as um, is flying a kite. Like you can, you can whine all you want about how you're not flying a kite, but in order to fly a kite, you've got to go out and, and like literally throw a kite in the air and do it over and over and over again until the wind catches it. And then it takes it up. And, you know, you threw out a ton of projects and, and at some point the wind caught marked and it, when it worked, you know, and same thing for me at some point, lore was, was the kite that got caught in the wind and it's, and it's, it's flown. So, um, you know, you have to throw things out there. You have to a combination have to keep of quality and quantity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Yep. It takes determination. Yeah. And uh, maybe some stupidity, but, um, you know. I call it optimism, right. but I equate the two very often. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate myself for being such an optimist, but <laughs> no matter how bad things get, I'm always like, ah, oh, this next one will work. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. That brings us to our top three picks. Yeah. Are you gonna, prepared for this segment? I, I think I am. I'm going to wing this. Do, do you have categories or is it just three things? It's three anythings. You okay. can you could name a city you like. I have so few rules about this. <laughs> so we awesome. one at a time, you get yeah, to go first. Sure. So I am nearing the end of reading a graphic novel series called Lock and Key. Have you read this? I have not. So lock with an E on the end, L-O-C-K-E, and key. And it's um, it's written by Joe Hill um, and uh, illustrated by uh, Gabriel Rodriguez, whose art is just amazing. Um, Joe Hill, it's, most people probably know this, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. Um, he just publishes under the name Joe Hill. And uh, he had a book come out recently called The Fireman, which is just, I got a galley copy of that and didn't oh. read it. <laughs> oh, you should read it. It's, it's so on good. my shelf. I have like 20, the bookstore in town went out of business. So I got like all their stuff. Oh, wow. Um, so I have a huge shelf of things to read. Yeah. So Lock and Key is a six volume graphic novel series um, about a house called uh, Key House, um, which is on an island, Lovecraft Island off the coast of Massachusetts. It's all made up, obviously. Um, but there's like a bunch of keys in this house that open doors in special ways. And um, these kids are thrown into the house through some um, traumatic experiences. And they find out that they're part of a, like a lineage of people who have been caring for the keys and keeping the keys away from particular evil beings. And the keys can do bad things and good things. And um, it's really good. It's really good. Okay. So there, I'm looking on the web and there are... Alpha and Omega and volumes. Which which one specifically are you reading right now? Um, I think I'm in the middle of number three. They've taken all of the all the original comics and they're in six volumes. Um, okay. So I don't know. Like like volume one is Welcome to Lovecraft. Um, volume two is I can't remember the name of it. Volume three that I'm in right now is Crown and Sh- Crown of Shadows. They all have a different key on the front. Um, oh, Head Games is the second one. Um, they all have a different key in the front. I'm noticing that it's kind of the focus plot-wise of that volume. Um, it's it's cool. It's beautifully illustrated, and the writing is tight. So Nice. Yeah, I recommend it. All right. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's not the prequel to the Key and Peele series? No, and they don't make an appearance in here. Mm. Yeah. They do, however, do television commercials now, which I'm greatly enjoying. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I'm going to start with a game. Okay. Do you like games? Do you play games on your phone? We do. I do, yeah. So I like a few different kinds of games, my favorite being basic puzzle games, things that are um, hand-eye coordination-based but don't require long periods of effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, toiling games, if you will. Bathroom yeah. games. Yeah. And uh, waiting room games. So I recently was turned on to a game called Duet by a friend of mine. And it is a gorgeous. I should. It's a it's sim, simple graphics, amazing audio design. 
intriguing kind of uh, level by level plot change. It's actually like a psych manual. Oh, really? Like a textbook because it goes through like different emotions and gives you just like these little quips and quotes that are sometimes sometimes they floor me because it'll be like something that I'm feeling at the moment and the level will just start with text on the screen that talks about anger or jealousy or despair and then it'll ruin the level for me. But, um, Breaks your concentration. Is that the one with the red and blue swirly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. And okay. you, you basically you tap right or left to spin these two circles around each other and avoid obstacles. And there are patterns that develop. Once you learn to start thinking in this kind of circular format in with two objects at once, you begin to just kind of fall into this kind of Zen. Mm. Uh, once you, when, when the time comes, after you kill yourself a hundred times on a level, there will come a, 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 a pass at it where it just all falls into place and you, it feels like a dance. And it's kind of fascinating to me when I finally hit that point. It's worth the effort to get to that point, which in a lot of games that were as difficult as this one gets after a few levels, I would probably give up. But I have consistently played this game for months now, and I will get stuck on a level for days at a time and find myself just going back to it over and over again. I was like that with Alto's Adventure. Yes, I I still am. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I beat it. I Did beat you? it uh, like a month ago. And it was, it was, I, I ranked like with the birth of my children, my wedding, like, you know, it's, it's, it's up in there. That was an accomplishment. And it was one of those things too, where you're playing it and you do fall into this zone where all of a sudden it's just so much easier to jump over everything. And again, beautiful audio design in that game. Yeah. Which yeah. I think you appreciate because that's the first thing I thought about your podcast about Laura was, wow, that is really beautiful audio design thanks i'm yeah. i make it up as i go along <laughs> it works it's wonderful so i feel i feel audio graphics can be simple they need to not be jarringly simple unless that's the shtick of the game mm-hmm. but audio design makes such a big difference it really does yeah i mean you want people to feel immersed in the yeah. thing that they're playing and that really helps anytime a game starts with a splash screen that says headphones recommended I right. feel like it's a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we put so much time into this audio design that you're going to want to wear headphones to appreciate yeah. it. Please, please listen. <laughs> and if the game sells a soundtrack, you, you, you have to, you have to listen to the soundtrack. Why, you know, yeah. listen to the- well, once you get into the game, then adding the soundtrack to the rest of your life adds like this, um, adrenaline challenge mode to things. <laughs> right. All right. So second pick for you. So second pick, I am late to the party on this, but have you played the the room games? Room. Um, on so good on the iPad. I wouldn't recommend them on an iPhone. Um, the first one was called The Room, and then the second one was The Room Two. I have seen these. Apple featured one of them for a long time. Yeah, I mean uh, they're well deserving of it. So so I recently opened up. I, I just I realized oh there's a Room Three, so I bought it. I grew up. Um, so I, we already talked about, I'm, I'm, I'm 41. Um, I grew up playing a game called Myst. <clears throat> so that was in the days when my buddy and I would, would build our own computer and then install Myst from, you know, a, a CD <laughs> and, yeah. and then fill up the entire hard drive with it. And then, 
play this game. And Myst was this different kind of game where you just explored the world and solved puzzles. There was no conflict. There was no violence. There was no human interaction. You just, you were like alone in this world exploring, listening to, talk about like sound design. Sometimes you'd have to listen to the sounds the birds made in, in different places to know how to solve a puzzle. Um, and nobody would tell you that. You just have to pick that up on your own. It was really difficult. But Myst was, the whole series of Myst games were great. Um, so the room reminds me of the Myst games. And so I recently struggled my way through the room three, which was fantastic. And it had four possible endings. And so once I finished it with one, I was able to go back and, and do the other three endings, which was, was really enjoyable. Like I'm a completionist, so it felt good to kind of get all of the things fixed and solved <laughs> and whatnot. So the cool thing is my seven-year-old has watched me play a little bit of it. And she says, can, can I play it? And I thought, well, the room one was pretty simple. It was just one room. And then the room two had more complexity. And then room three was a lot of complexity. So I thought, well, I don't want her to play the room three that I'm playing right now, but I'll go back to the first one and let her play that. And I'm not kidding you. My, my seven-year-old has played and beaten the first two games. Um, and now we've kind of settled into the last one and she's working on that. It's, it's a lot. It's more of an uphill climb. Um, but it's just neat to see her working through like, oh, that shape on that key looks like the shape on that hole that I saw in that box in the room and then going over there and trying it. And it's, it's been really fun. So not only am I enjoying the game, but then there's this, you know, this daddy daughter kind of, um, experience happening where uh, we're working together to solve puzzles and sure. Yeah. So that's been good. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I don't play games on my computer or a console anymore. I play games frequently on my iPad and that sounds like the kind of game I can yeah. get into. I do play games on my Apple TV, which I I honestly can't remember the name of the game that I really like right now, but it's very much like that. You have to observe everything. Mm-hmm. And uh and it combines um like photographic like this guy built a world out of like cardboard and parts. And then oh. photographed it, and then combined it with computer graphics to make a visually stunning uh, a world you could just easily get lost in. Um, cool. Did you ever play Sierra games? Like uh, King's Quest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I played King's Quest. That's what I grew up on. My friends had Mist. I'd play Mist with my friends, but at home, starting on my PC Junior with King's Quest One, mm-hmm. I found those games. I would get obsessed for weeks. I yeah. solved King's Quest five in, I think, two weeks, a very, very significant number of hours. Right, but, but yeah, I'm I'm easily lost in those things. So this does sound cool. Yeah, it's it's funny. I still open up new games and judge them by my memories of of those years, e- even up to. It was like right at the end of college when Diablo came out, or sometime in college when Diablo came out, and. You know, I'll, if I open up a a game that's supposed to be a what do, what do they call that Thir- third perspective or the dungeon crawler kind of games, I still hold it up to to Diablo and say, is it is this as good as that game was? Um, and StarCraft and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, they they stick around with you. Yeah, well, there's a surprising number of eight and sixteen bit kind of uh, evolved games. I mean, yeah. you look at uh, Crossy Road, right, right. It's a very, it's a sentimental aesthetic, to be sure. Yeah. Um, 
and I, I do the same thing. Things that invoke a sentimental memory of childhood games mm-hmm. I loved yeah, do become frequent purchases. You should check out, I'm not going to use one of my three slots for this, but you should check out Polytopia. Have you, have you played that? It's the, um, it's kind of that, that, uh, the view of the world like Crossy Road, but it's, a it, it has that like age of empires or King's quest feel where it's a third 3d perspective on, I, I don't know the, the name of that perspective. It's when you're, it's like orthographically projected. You're coming at it from the side kind of thing. Um, but you, you have a tribe and you build, you build your, you know, your fortress and you build this. The, the battle of polytopia. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the full name of it? I just, I looked for polytopia on iTunes and that's what came up. Poly. It is you. You build. It looks like. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. What was the name of that game? That was like. Uh, well, I mean, it looks like a really old Sim City in some ways. Uh, there was a game that was like Risk, but for the computer. Similar concept, like basically your goal was world domination. Right. Someone listening right now is like, "Duh, I know what that is," but screaming. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Just to answer the question. I can't hear uh, you. So, so Radiotopia is really, not Radiotopia, that's a nice network of podcasts. <laughs> um, Polytopia is a really fun game if you like that. It's, and it's real quick too. You can probably knock out a game in 10 minutes. So depending on how long your toilet time is, you got that. Yeah. My toilet time always ends up being longer than... Because of games. The actual toilet time. And then there's a knock on the door. Are you actually going to the bathroom or are you just playing games? <laughs> I'm just playing games. I'll be out in a sec. Oh, man. Um... All right. So anyway. Yeah. I am my second pick. My second pick. I'm using an app right now called Nearlock. And this may soon be uh, out outmoded by the next version of OS X, uh, mm-hmm. Mac OS, by the time that comes out. Um, but it's called Nearlock, and it uses uh, Bluetooth LE... BTLE to allow your phone to unlock and lock your computer based on proximity, which is something I have <laughs> pined for for years. Right. I like I've worked for a long time to have my phone be able to turn lights on and off as I move through the house um, based on Bluetooth. And then BTLE made that a little easier, a little more practical. This app, however, combines uh, a watch, an Apple Watch app with the iPhone app and between the two, even if the proximity isn't working perfectly, right? which I have never found a perfect, like all of a sudden your phone is 11 feet away or you're 11 feet away and it thinks it's three feet away and it fluctuates, but I can actually turn off the monitoring, like automatic lock and unlock and have it lock or have my screensaver lock it after just like one minute. And then my watch, when I sit down and near lock is disabled, when I bring up the lock screen on my computer, my watch will say unlock, question mark. I can tap it and it'll unlock my machine. So I still have to have my phone near it. I still have mm-hmm. to be wearing my watch. Like it's a relatively secure system. But uh, without the inconvenience of random locks and unlocks so you're you're a prime candidate for some sort of biometrical implant oh i have said for years you can stick anything in in you in me that you want and this is to people with surgical tools not 
not know, random sexual partners, whatever. Significant others, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that our minds went the same place on that. But because I, I, I've got a pine cone from a redwood in California, and it's about the size of a football, so I, you know, I'm just <laughs> putting that out there. Yes, this does not include you in this case, but like the idea of subdermal. Uh, right. LCD displays and ID chips, you know, between my thumb and forefinger, things like that. I'm totally in on. In yeah. fact, I would give up a limb if you said you could replace it with something better. Right. <laughs> I like the idea of cyborg life. Right. Uh, so, yes, I am definitely. I want things around me to respond to me. And if that requires injecting microchips into me, I'd be cool with it. Yeah. I would Works. like the temperature, like if you could have uh, an HVAC system, I'm sorry, HVAC for people working in the industry, um, yeah. that could like modulate the temperature for individuals as they move from room to room. Uh, lighting and temperature and door locks, things like that. Yeah. Right. That should all just know I'm there. Yeah. I'm bored with actually turning like deadbolt. Yeah. Make it cooler. Right. <laughs> okay so I, i'm just sitting here thinking how sad that it is that someday my home will obey me better than my kids will but that's just we, we can make implants for them too yeah i bet, I bet <laughs> <laughs> they have uh they have new collars for dogs that uh hide things like prongs and electrical shocks oh really yeah so that no one because you, you put an e-collar on your dog and people frown at you because and and i frown at you i think right. it's it's a horrible idea um but for people that really want to like abuse their their pets mm -hmm. now you can hide it from your nosy neighbor who who thinks they know everything about dogs oh nice so it's kind of like agree with them so it's like putting vodka in your water bottle yeah you know? You know, you're you're still drinking heavily, but nobody knows it. Yeah, you're still damaging your your liver, but yeah, yeah. Who's gonna who's gonna frown at you? Right, covertly. Yeah, <laughs> it's just avian. <laughs> oh god, it's disturbing to see those in pet stores right next to the clicker displays. <laughs> anyway, yeah. okay. So you're number three. Number three. So I'm gonna go old school here because I live in this app, but Evernote, and I know that a lot of people are talking. Oh, let's go back to notes on the iPhone and, and on the Mac. But uh, I love Evernote. And it's it's where I spend all my time. I outline stuff in there. I don't write full episodes in there. I write those in pages but because um, I like the way it looks. Uh, but Evernote is, is everything I need it to be for running my podcast. I throw every bit of research in there. I use tags, you know, to the end of the day. Um, and then I filter stuff for each episode. It's fantastic. My philosophy when talking to um, productivity consultation clients is if Evernote is working for you, mm -hmm. because I often hear the question, should I move away from Evernote? And I say, if Evernote is working for you, if you can commit to that ecosystem, mm -hmm. there's no reason to change. Right. It's a solid application. It's a solid sync, and, you know, for multi-platform note-taking uh, for organization and tagging, all of that, it's, it is solid. My concern, the reason I moved away from it was always just the fact that it is an ecosystem. And if you want to leave it and you mm -hmm. still want all those notes you've taken for years, you're going to hit some, 
some roadblocks. Yeah. Uh, but if, yeah, if it works for you and you can dedicate to it and handle, you know, price increases and things, then yeah, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. I, look, I still spend more on coffee every year than I do on Evernote. And I feel like that's maybe the barrier right there, but <laughs> I, I use it to run a business too. So I, maybe I'm different. I'm not, you know, I'm not someone who's just running a grocery list off it. Uh, and that's all they use it for. I don't mind paying for something that fits my needs and, and takes care of what I need it to do. Um, and I, you know, and while I use it, I'll just hope that someday somebody like you creates an export feature for me. I, uh, you know, yeah. the golden parachute. <laughs> yeah. I, I have done that multiple times. Um, I would say I think it's, you have to be somewhat uh, masochistic to try to rebuild Evernote's functionality without Evernote. Yeah. And fortunately, myself and a lot of the people who come to me are that masochistic. Um, <laughs> it works for me. But right. um, but yeah, it's, it's such an easy all-in-one note-taking platform and organization yeah. platform. So, yeah. cool. Cool. I'm, I don't think anyone said that to me for a long time, so it's almost refreshing. Nice. I, I interviewed, um, who was it? Who is the CEO of Evernote until recently? Phil uh, Lieben. Lieben, yeah. I, yeah. I interviewed him for Tua back when Evernote first launched before it was oh. at all popular. Yeah. And I was super excited about it, especially the idea that it could take things like audio messages. Mm-hmm and turn them into searchable notes. It could take handwriting, turn it into searchable notes. That stuff was, I don't know, still is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of what I do hinges on the ability to search for a string of keywords in some document somewhere. And so, you know, if I'm doing research, I might be on books.google.com, which is fantastic with text search. But at some point, I need to get that into Evernote. So I'll take screenshots. Then Evernote still picks up on it. It'll still find, you know, the the phrase on that page, even though it's a, a JPEG in, yeah. in Evernote. And I, I really, I, I I need that. You know, I, I don't want to have to sit there and read through five screenshots to find that one thing I was Well, and you for. also don't want to have to spend so much time upfront organizing. Right. Yeah. That, that you end up wasting time for something you may never look for again. Right. But on the off chance you do, you need to make sure it's, you know, properly categor- categorized, properly tagged. Yeah, I mean, that's why I love Spotlight. You know, mm. being able to search the content of a thousand different files at once. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it, it's smart. super helpful. Yeah. All right. So my last pick is going to be Pexels. It's a, uh, it's a site that searches multiple stock photo sites uh, and free sites. Oh, nice. And they have now a Mac app that is it's enjoyable let's say if you ever need quick and uh, you know often free images for whatever a blog post or even a album cover whatever it's nice to be able to uh, aggregate all of the results and this does that very well and the mac app makes it very desktop friendly and if i'm remembering right there's also a photoshop plugin for it which oh, i nice i don't use photoshop as much as i used to but that is also a handy possibility mm-hmm. so yeah 
it's a simple third pick. I like it. No, I like it. It's useful. If, like you said, blog posts, um, desktop I, background, whatever. Yeah, for I, both I, of those. I think blogging, if you're a blogger, images make a huge difference in a post. Mm-hmm. I tend to read a post more closely if it has an image that attracts me to begin with. Right. So, yeah. Very nice. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. <laughs> you can be found, let's say, it, does Lore have its own Twitter account? Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's um, list yours and Lore's then. Okay. So I am on Twitter, A-M-A-H-N-K-E. That's A-Mankey. Um, Lore is Lore Podcast everywhere. Lorepodcast.com, Lore Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, do you want to list a personal website or stick with Lore? Um, I don't I don't update it too often, but I mean, I do have AaronMankey.com. Um, I tend to get more messages through the Lore site because that's what people know me for. Uh, yeah, I, it's still crazy to me that <laughs> you're known for something that is essentially so different than what I originally... I'm a different person in some ways. I mean, it's it when you think of it that way, like I'm not doing any of those things anymore. It's kind of weird. It it is weird, but it's also very refreshing. Yeah. And I, I still feel like me. I don't feel like I've sold out or anything like that. I just it's just different. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. People change. People grow. Come on. I know. I know. <laughs> All it's, right. And it's nice that the change was good. <laughs> you know, like it was I didn't fade into obscurity, um, you know, after a couple of years of doing logos for websites, I, I, uh, I've actually done something and it, it feels nice. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I am TT scoff everywhere and at Brett You can also go to TT scoff.com and get to my website, which I always forget to mention, but really for consistency. Sure. TT scoff everywhere. That's right. Um, a ridiculously obscure username that I can always get on any new social service. Social service. <laughs> okay, so, yes. And this was uh, episode probably 169 with Aaron Mankey. So thanks so much for being here, Aaron. Oh, thanks for having me, man. This was fun. I appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Thanks. You too. And looking forward to the TV show. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I'm obviously I'm pretty stoked myself but thank you (laughs) (laughs) alright and we'll see everybody in a week